This morning I want to invite you, um, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 together. And I'm going to dive right into the passage here pretty quickly. Um, but if you can go ahead and find that in your Bibles or on your phones, if that's where you, you read um, your Bible. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 in chapter 8 today. I want to remind you briefly of the context, the backdrop of this letter. I'm sure Dom uh, sort of built that out for you over the past few months, and I alluded to it last week, that the, the letter of 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, the one that we're reading from today, is one that Paul wrote at probably one of the hardest times in his entire life. It was a time of despair. It was a time of depression for Paul. It was a time where most of what he was up to in ministry might have seemed gloomy or, or overcast. But there are a few glimpses or, or bright spots, things that were giving Paul new hope and encouragement as he's writing this letter. And one of them we alluded to last week when, when Titus, he had sent Titus with a very difficult letter to the church in Corinth before this letter. And, and he didn't think things were going to go all that well. But Titus came back to him with a positive report. He, he told them that somehow, miraculously, God had resurrected that friendship and relationship with the Corinthians. And that it was beginning to heal and that there was repentance and there was, there was joy within Paul about what was going to happen when he was able to get back to Corinth. And so that's why he's writing 2 Corinthians, right, in preparation for that return visit. But as he's writing these things, Paul also has another source of encouragement and hope flooding into his life. And that's coming from the churches he's currently with as he's writing this letter. And that's the, the churches of Macedonia. Paul is, I don't know how many hundred kilometers north of Corinth, but you can see here on the map, the star is the city of, of Corinth, which was a, a big, important, growing prosperous city in the, the greater Roman world. And Macedonia lay to the north. It was a very different region, had a very different flavor than, than Greece. Paul is, is staying, he's ministering among these churches as he's writing this letter. So that would be, um, if you read your Bibles, the, the Macedonian churches that we think of are Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. Those were some of the key congregations in this northern region. And he says that, that they were this ongoing source of encouragement and blessing to Paul. Which is important for us to recognize because Macedonia at the, the time of Paul's lifetime in the first century was a part of the greater Roman world that was marked by kind of ongoing poverty. It was not a particularly easy place to live. They, they didn't have all the new money flooding into their cities. They didn't have all the same trading opportunities that places like the Corinthians did. And so poverty was a, an ongoing reality for anyone living in Macedonia. But especially for those who had welcomed and received Paul's message of the gospel in these cities. Their lives got even more difficult from that day on. We read in the book of Acts how when Paul came to the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, 
He was welcomed with enthusiasm. The gospel flourished in these places. But almost instantaneously, persecution broke out. Difficult persecution. So these Macedonian churches, if they were followers of Jesus, they would have almost immediately begun to experience a loss of social standing. That was probably also accompanied by financial hardships. They may have lost jobs. They may have lost trading partners in the marketplace. And in some cases, we know it also involved jailing, arrest, and even violence to their families and homes. These Macedonian brothers and sisters were suffering right alongside Paul. They experienced many of the same conflicts and difficulties Paul did. So he writes in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, that when he came to Macedonia, both in his own ministry but also among the Macedonians, there was no rest. There was harassment everywhere. There was conflict. There was difficulty. But Paul now tells us at the start of chapter 8 that out of all the churches that he ministered among, it was these churches that were most consistently a source of joy and generosity in Paul's life. These churches that were in the midst of constant conflict were marked by joy and generosity. And if you, if you read through Paul's letters, if you read through Acts, you find out that actually they were among the most faithful givers to Paul from day one. Right? Paul comes through Macedonia, he preaches the gospel, these churches take root, and very quickly Paul has to flee for his life. They're trying to kill Paul in Macedonia. And so he goes, that's what drives him south to Athens and then to Corinth. And when he arrives in Corinth and, and a work begins there and a church is started in that city, who is it that sends financial backing to Paul but these impoverished Macedonian churches? Right? They, they so love Paul that they send whatever they have with a messenger to Paul in Corinth at the very beginning of that church planting project to bless him. We know that at the end of Paul's life, when Paul is finally imprisoned in Rome many years after this, it will be the Macedonians again who send one of their own people, Epaphroditus, to Paul to minister to him in his jail cell, to care for his needs provide for him financially. Right? They were a group of churches that were constantly seeking to bless and share what they had with others. But I wonder, how, how does that compute? Right? These were some of the most ill-treated and poorest people in, in all of the New Testament church. And yet they are the ones Paul most often highlights as an example of joyful generosity. Where did they learn this? How did they become this way? That's what I want to look at together in these 15 verses this morning in 2 Corinthians 8. How did the Macedonian churches become joyfully generous? And how do we as God's people practice that same thing? How do we grow in that together? Let me pray for us as we read the scriptures together. Lord, we pray uh, with longing for your word to be sustenance to us, to be light to our eyes. 
Lord, we pray that as we receive this word and it nourishes us, that it might also overflow, that it might cause us to practice and, and to live in the same kind of generous spirit that these churches in Macedonia blessed Paul with so many centuries ago. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth as I preach may the meditations and the choices and convictions of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. With me at 2 Corinthians 8, we'll start with verses 1 through 5. Oh, there we go. So Paul has, has been, in the chapter before this, talking to the Corinthians about the, the reconciliation and restoration of their friendship. And now with the, the miracle of their, their reconciliation on the horizon, Paul's going to come back to Corinth, and, and they are being restored to him in friendship. Now he wants to talk to them about this project he has, which is to collect financial blessings and resources to send to the churches of Jerusalem who are starving. They are facing significant challenges and need help. And so Paul's going to speak to them about this here in chapter 8. He says, And now, brothers and sisters in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given these Macedonian churches. And again, this is where Paul's living as he writes these words. I want you to know about the gift or the grace God has given the Macedonian church. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. Think about the contrast there. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And here he means the gift to the churches of Jerusalem. And when they did so, they exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. To me, as Paul speaks about the Macedonian church here in verses 1 through 5, I hear Paul describing another miracle of resurrection. Another example of where God has chose to do something that looks foolish or unbelievable in the eyes of the world, but is full of the unique power of Jesus, full of the unique way the gospel brings life to the world. And that is in in who he has chosen to be, chosen to be his, his most powerful elements or, 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 or displayers of generosity. God chose the weak, the hard-pressed, the persecuted, the impoverished Macedonians. And into these fragile and, and cracked vessels, God chooses to pour the very best of his gifts. He chooses to, to move them out and through and into his church. And I want you to see what Paul says in verse 1 about how this takes place. He says, I want you to know about the grace, the, the 
charis in Greek, literally the, the gift that God has given to the Macedonian churches. And he goes on to explain in verse 2 that God gave them this incredible gift in the midst of a time of severe trial. And this is how he describes the gift that God gave them. He says that under this intense time of persecution, they found their overflowing joy and extreme poverty. When their joy and their poverty mixed together, it welled up into a rich display of generosity. There's a a strange logic about what Paul is saying here about how people become joyfully generous. And according to Paul, generosity is not something we initiate. Generosity doesn't start with us. Paul explains that the generosity he sees and is encouraged by in the Macedonian church is actually a gift that God has given to them. Paul is saying that When people become generous, they first learn to receive something. That's counterintuitive, but I think it's what the scriptures say. Those who practice generosity have first learned to receive something. And that something is the inexhaustible grace of God. The unique power and strength of God. The unfailing love of God for them. These Macedonians knew what it was like to suffer. They knew hardship at every turn. But those hardships caused them to depend upon the gift and the grace and the joy of belonging to Jesus Christ. It caused them to discover that that God's life within them, this resurrection life that Paul had proclaimed in the gospel, was a real thing they could depend on. And so when it seemed like they had nothing, in fact, they had everything still within them. In fact, they had more than enough. Paul says that the life of God, the love of God, the grace of God in them was overflowing. To the point that they were looking for an outlet. Looking for for somewhere to direct it and to distribute it to others. So I think the first thing we need to know about how we become generous is that if we haven't tasted of, if we haven't received, if we haven't been ministered to by the grace of God and the love of God for us, then we need to stop right there. Right? That's the first step toward becoming generous, is, is understanding and drinking directly from the generosity of God toward us. Because the Macedonians had done that in a consistent way, We see in verse 4 that they come to Paul and they are now asking Paul. They're initiating towards Paul. They're looking for a way they can join in the gift Paul wants to give to the church in Jerusalem. And I almost think Paul probably had neglected or sort of skirted raising the issue with these Macedonians. Because they had their own poverty. They had their own conflicts. They had their own challenges they were in the midst of. And he's he's sort of thinking, well, I'm I'm not going to ask them to give out of their hardship to their brothers and sisters who are facing similar hardship. But because of who the Macedonians are, they bring it up. They say, Paul, we heard you're doing this. We want to be part of this. 
please let us in. And so in verse 5, right, Paul says they offer themselves to the Lord, whatever they have, whatever they possess. And they want to direct it to where God is at work. They offer themselves to the Lord, and, and as they do that, the Lord directs them to partner with Paul in his mission and ministry. And so they're this incredible example of, of God initiating and, and doing this, this resurrection work of generosity in Macedonia. Paul brings this up, one, because it's encouraging him in the moment he's writing the letter, but two, because now he's going to turn the mirror toward Corinth. And he's going to say, would you like to become generous in the same way? Would you like to imitate and grow into this practice in the way the Macedonians have illustrated? Look at verses 6 through 11. He says, so we, we urged Titus when he sent that letter with Titus to Corinth. We urged him just as he had earlier made a beginning. A year before this, he had brought up this idea of giving a gift to the churches in Jerusalem. Just as he had earlier made a beginning, now to bring also to completion this act of grace, this act of giving on your part. It says verse 7 to the Corinthians, But since you excel in everything, because you excel in faith, and in speech, and in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. See now that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace, or the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were not only the first to give, but also the first to have the desire to do so. So now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to to your means. Paul is, is putting a challenge, a healthy challenge before the Corinthians. He wants them to lean into this practice of resurrection generosity, of generosity that only the gospel can create. And he, he's bringing back to them this, this invitation to give to the churches in Jerusalem. And that was something he had raised with them probably a year or more prior to this. And they had started into, but they had sort of fizzled out of. And so now he wants to, to ask them about their intention, about their willingness to become generous, to continue in their generosity. And in verses 1 through 5, he, he said one of the hallmarks of the Macedonian churches is their giving of gifts, right? At every turn, the Macedonians are always seeking to give us things, to bless us. Well, what about your church? What marks the Corinthian congregation? Well, if you go back and you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, I think you could say safely that the Corinthians were also a gift-happy people. 
If we read through the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, you can see that they are people eager and zealous to possess gifts. They want God to give them gifts of knowledge. They want spiritual gifts. They want gifts of speaking. They want gifts of tongues. They want gifts of prophecy. They want gifts of faith. They ask God to give them gifts of wisdom, which is good. They are eager to receive God's gifts to them. They want to, to receive the gifts and the power of the Spirit in Corinth. But I wonder if sometimes they're so stuck on the getting part that they've failed to move on to the giving part. Something was lacking in Corinth. And so Paul, sort of tongue-in-cheek, gently prods them here in verse 7. And he says, you know, if, if, if you excel in all these other gifts, if God has given you richly all these other things, speech and knowledge and, and even love for us and for one another, then why not go on even further and now ask God to give you the grace of giving? There's sort of a play on words here, right? God, give us the gift of giving. Paul is expressing a step of Christian maturity that each of us need to grow in. Right? Part of the Christian life is asking God to meet our needs. Right? Asking God to minister his grace to us. Asking God to show us his mercy. Asking God to give us our daily bread. Asking us to fill us, asking him to fill us with new life. But as God gives his good gifts to us, Right? Part of maturity is also discovering how those gifts move through us. Right? We're not just gift receptacles. We don't just absorb God's blessings. Right? The way God has intended this to work is that we also release his blessings into the world and, and to one another. And that's what generosity looks like. Right? It begins with God's gifts to us, but those gifts have to move out through us. And I don't think that's just a spontaneous thing. It doesn't just happen in a moment or in an instant. It's a practice. It's a way of life. And part of the problem, it seems like, in Corinth, according to verses 6 and again in 10, is that the Corinthians were good about getting excited at giving for a moment, for a little while. Right? They, they were eager. They were the first people to give a gift to Paul. They were the first ones to raise the idea with him. But eventually that, that sort of feel-good giving stalled out. And I think we've probably all done this from time to time. Right? We hear about a need. We hear about an opportunity. Someone comes to us with an appeal. There's a project that needs our, our help, our gifts, our, our financial backing. And so we give something, right? But as soon as the, the kind of urgency or the feel-good part of that gift fades away, then sometimes our, our giving and our generosity and our follow-through fade away as well. But the kind of generosity Paul is speaking about, the kind he's seeing lived out in the Macedonian church is different. It's not start and stop, right? Because if that generosity depends upon the grace and the gift of God to us, and it continues by the gifts of God 
moving through us. Right? Then, then it is actually up to God to sustain that work, to fill up that work. Right? It, it actually is a kind of generosity that depends upon God from start to finish. So it has to be a, a walk with the Spirit. It has to be an ongoing thing. Which is why Paul, I think, in these verses, talks a lot about completion. It's almost like he paints a picture of, of running a race to the finish line. Right? Complete what you started. Allow the generosity you were so excited about a year ago to become a sustained practice in you. A way of partnering with God's Spirit, day in and day out. So Paul, I think, ex explains that there are these, these dimensions of how God's grace moves to us and through us. But eventually we run into some practical questions around generosity. Right? We, we have to ask the question, what does God want us to give? How much does God want us to give? What about our own needs? What about our own desires? Where do those figure in. And so in the last few verses we're going to look at today, Paul gives us, I think, a, a few parameters, a few simple boundaries to help us think about that. How does resurrection generosity look in practice? Verse 12, he says, for if, if your willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to God according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. Our desire is that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty, your abundance, will supply what they need. And Here he means the, the church in Jerusalem. So that in turn, their plenty, their abundance, will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Here Paul is, is wrestling with the question, how does God want us to give? How much does God want us to give? And I think it's probably one Paul raises because he knows the Corinthians are asking this. The Corinthians are actually one of the most affluent congregations Paul knew. Right? They, there was a lot of money pouring into Corinth, and he knows that there are people in that church that have significant expendable income, discretionary income. And yet, for whatever reason, they are also among the most sluggish to, to share it in a consistent fashion. And we might ask, well, what's behind that? What are they struggling with? Well, if I ask myself that question, usually what limits my own practice of generosity are things like worry, and fear, right? If I give to others today what I currently have, what about tomorrow when I have a need or a desire? What if it's not there when I want it or need it? Right? What about my own needs, my own family? I was talking to a, a friend of mine last week, and he, uh, he had moved recently in, a few years back, and he put several uh, you know, boxes and boxes of stuff in a storage unit. And this summer, he was going back through all these boxes, trying to decide whether to keep the storage unit or not. And he said it was amazing how much stuff he had put in storage that he had literally, in three years' time, forgot he owned. Right? He was going through these boxes, like, I totally forgot I had this stuff. 
I forgot I had this, you know, coffee maker and these books and, you know, he said there was boxes of cough medicine that they had stored. You know, I was like, why, why, what are we doing here? Right, and he was paying, I don't know, $100, $150 a month to keep all this stuff. And he said, you know, I, I, that stuff could have disappeared from the face of the earth six months ago and I never would have known the difference. But once I went through some of these boxes and saw some of this stuff, and I had to think about, do I want to give this away? There was this other instinct that rose up in him and said, no, 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 we should, we should keep this. Let's put it back, and we'll just hold on to it, because we might need it next year. We might need it six months from now. Right? There's, there's this, this sort of strange logic that works within us, that we resist letting things go, letting things move through us. And so how do we let resurrection generosity reshape those tendencies? Well, there's not like a quick and easy answer, but I think Paul gives us a principle here. He says in verse 12, resurrection generosity is always about abundance meeting need. Right? The, the overflowing bounty of what God has given us meeting a deficit. And so he says, God doesn't actually ask us to give what we don't have to give. God asks us to evaluate our lives and notice where he's given us more than enough. And then release that as a blessing. Release that with joy. Verse 12, God asks us to give according to what we have already been given. And I think this is an important part of, of Paul's theology because it comes back to who we think God is. God doesn't ask us to meet a need to meet a deficit by creating another deficit. He doesn't say, go take out a loan with the bank to give money away to other people. Paul believes in a God of abundance, a God of superabundance, a God who created the world with the words of his mouth. And he knows that most often, most of us have more than we need, at least in some area of our life. Not just money, but time, relationships, all kinds of things. And so generosity is about joyfully discovering that abundance and choosing to release it to where there is a need. That can be in little ways, it can be in big ways. A few weeks ago, we got back from some of our, our traveling this summer and our garden was exploding with lettuce. All of the, the rain and all of the heat Made, I think we probably had 35, 40 heads of lettuce, all like super huge in our garden at one time. And we, we like to eat a salad every night, but there was no way we could use all this lettuce. And we asked our neighbors, and they're like, no, we got the same problem. We don't want any of your lettuce. And so we were at a loss of what to do with it. And then two days after, we were, we were looking at our lettuce, knowing if we, we cut it and put it in our fridge, it was going to rot. And if we let it grow, it was going to bolt, right, and, and go to waste that way. We saw this email from the church in Richmond saying they were coordinating meals for people who had been impacted and displaced by the flooding. And so one morning we went and we cut, I don't know, you know, three picnic tables worth of lettuce. And we washed it with a hose and spun it out. And we, we brought it down to Richmond. And we were so excited to give that lettuce to somebody, right? Take it, please. Right? But we were able to release some of our temporary abundance 
to meet a need. We hope. We hope somebody was able to eat all that lettuce. I think that that's a picture of how God brings about generosity in our lives and the, the way he sustains that practice. But the truth is, that particular instance was pretty easy because we knew we couldn't keep the lettuce. There actually wasn't a temptation to do that because we knew it would go to waste. Right? Either we found someone to take it or, or what God had given us would just sort of end up in the compost bin. I think generosity becomes a lot harder when it comes to our money, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our time, when it comes to, to the stuff that's easier to stockpile and to hold back and to, to keep to ourselves, thinking maybe, maybe I could use a little more of this. And so I think the principle Paul would put before us is simply to ask, what has God given us more than enough of? And that's a question we have to ask day in and day out. And how might he be inviting me to release part of that today to somebody else, to an organization, to a person, to a neighbor, to a family member, wherever? Right? That's, that's the picture of generosity. And the last sort of image I want to leave you with is, is actually one that Paul alludes to here in verse 15. That, that last line in verse 15, he's quoting from the book of Exodus. At a time when God had rescued, right, the people of, of Israel, had taken them out of bondage in Egypt. They're out in the wilderness, and God begins to feed them with manna. Day in, day out, God supplies what they need. But every morning, they, they went out and they gathered this manna from the ground. And we're told that some had lots of strength and they gathered tons of manna. And others could only gather a little. But that in the, the providence of God, the way God designed these gifts to be distributed is that each person received the same measure, an ephah of, of manna each day. And so each one had enough. Right? The one who gathered lots didn't have too much. And we know that that manna would eventually spoil and rot in their tent if they, if they took too much. And the one who had not enough was, was blessed by the abundance of another. And I think that's a great image for us to, to imagine how this practice of generosity looks going forward. Right? Just like these Israelites, every morning they went out and they saw the gracious provision of God to them. Right? Every morning, can you start a practice of noticing God's gift to you, God's grace to you, God's love for you? Name the things, the undeserved gifts of God in your life. What has God given to you? And then just like the Israelites who gathered that manna and then they brought it back to be in God's presence, redistributed to his people, can you bring those undeserved blessings into the presence of God and ask for his help to move them through you, right? Eat what you need to eat. Take in what you need for your own sustenance, but then release what's too much. Right? And ask God to make known where there are needs. Help you to see those who don't have enough so that that abundance can be released and joyfully received as, as a blessing from God. We're going to look more at this practice of generosity next week in chapter 9. But let me pray for us as we come to an opportunity to do this very thing in the giving of our gifts and tithes. Lord, we... Um, we want to believe and know that you are a God of abundance and super generosity to us. We want to become like you. Would you help us? 
Would you give us the, the gift and grace of giving as your people? In Jesus' name we pray.